Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I am joined by some friends over at the Progressive Policy Institute who are really experts on the impact COVID-19 is having on state budgets and people that also very clearly understand what some of the opportunities to fill those budget holes are in the HEROES package that Congress is considering. So today I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Ben Ritz, the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future, and Brendan McDermott, the fiscal policy analyst at the Center for Funding America's Future. So with that, we'll go ahead and dig into it. Ben, can you just first, before we even get any deeper than that, give me a couple sentences on what the Progressive Policy Institute is, and then we'll dig in further and learn about the center. Sure. And thanks for having us, Brad. The Progressive Policy Institute is a center-left think tank in Washington, D.C., and we focus on trying to offer what we call radically pragmatic solutions to the major problems facing the country. The Center for Funding America's Future, specifically, we focus on fiscal policy, tax and spending issues. So we publish research reports, op-eds and blog posts about fiscal policy and related issues. We organize forums about federal and state budgets with elected officials and civic leaders across the country. And we publish a number of reports for trying to build stronger, better budgets for our government, the most recent of which was our emergency economics report, which had 30 recommendations for supporting the economy during the COVID-19 crisis and recessions that come after it. Excellent. Thank you. Brendan, I'm going to turn to you. You guys have been at the forefront of policy research regarding COVID-19 and its effect on state budgets. What did you find? Thank you very much. So what we found is that because states and localities are taking these necessary social distancing measures, people are not going out and spending as much money as they normally would. And many people have lost their jobs. And so they're not earning the normal income that they would. What that means for state and local governments, which often rely heavily on sales and income taxes, is that they're going to watch their normal revenue bases shrivel up. They have already begun seeing that happen. And on top of that, because so many more people are out of work or experiencing poverty right now, programs that benefit low-income people and people who've lost their jobs, like Medicaid and unemployment insurance, are going to have to spend a lot more money on those people. Medicaid and unemployment insurance, both being examples of programs operated in conjunction between the federal government and state governments. So it's a lot of state money that is tied up in those programs. PPI estimates that in total between the beginning of this pandemic and the end of 2021, states stand to lose about $630 billion, or $845 billion if you count the effects on unemployment insurance, which is theoretically self-funding, and so it's often not counted in the same number. Most state and local governments are also required to balance their budgets. 49 states, all except Vermont, have some kind of rule on the books requiring that they balance their budget in some way, but the details vary a lot. 
And what that means when these states are losing money coming in through revenues and are spending more money on programs that benefit low-income people, as well as all of the different spending that they have to do to specifically combat this pandemic and procuring ventilators and setting up testing regimes and tracing regimes, it means that these states are going to have to cut back their budget somewhere else to keep their budget in balance. PPI right now estimates that states are going to need to cut between $300 billion and $595 billion from their budgets in some way or another between now and the end of 2021, or I should say the beginning of the pandemic in 2021, just to break even. Looking back at the Great Recession, we can see that what states tend to look to when they need to balance their budgets is not so much tax increases as it is spending cuts, most commonly cuts to state workforces, higher education, public universities and community colleges, K-12 education, healthcare programs, especially Medicaid, and social services that benefit elderly and disabled people. Is the impact uniform across states, both red and blue? Because I know there's certainly been some partisan bickering here in Washington about the size of this package. Well, the problem is certainly not uniform across the country. Places that have higher outbreaks are going to probably need to do deeper, more serious types of contractions. They're going to be instituting more aggressive social distancing policies for a longer amount of time, and that's going to mean a bigger impact on their revenues. It's also likely that places that rely a lot on the travel industry, on the tourism industry, and other things like that that are particularly affected by the kind of distancing that we're doing are going to see a particularly pronounced effect. And I would also add that different states have different budget structures that lend themselves more easily susceptible to different recessions. And so, for example, a state or local government that is more heavily dependent on sales and income taxes is going to be much more affected than one that has higher revenues coming from property taxes that are less susceptible. And so I think that beyond just the outbreak, we also have to think about differences in how states are financed. There's been a lot of comparison between the Great Recession and this current situation we're dealing with, if for no other reason than proximity. It's the thing that most of us remember. Can you talk to me about what the similarities are between this economic crisis and that one, and then also maybe expand on the things that make the COVID crisis potentially more challenging? Sure. I think I'm probably going to tackle those in reverse order. So the biggest difference between the COVID crisis and the financial crisis is the financial crisis was created by problems in how our economy was functioning. And so they took a while to manifest in their impacts on the labor market and financial markets and and things like that. The COVID crisis is driven by an outside shock from the virus. And so it is not necessarily a problem with how our economy was functioning as we just got hit with this additional challenge. And so the result of that is that all of the, or most of the job losses came at once. We had these rolling shutdowns across the country, industries that required people to be having a lot of face-to-face contact, had to shut down and are not going to reopen for a while. So it was much sharper and faster. I think where they have more similarities is in terms of the long-term economic effects. We saw that in the financial crisis, it took a long time to 
get the jobs back that were lost. And so even though as we have seen the job losses early on grow by millions per week, a lot of those job losses are going to be temporary and people are already starting to go back to work. But if you look at the number of people who are going from temporary layoff to permanent layoff, those numbers actually look a lot more like the Great Recession. And so I think one of the, the best ways to think about it, I forget which economist said this, but we have both a suppression and a recession going on right now. And the suppression is going to relax as people go back to their normal lives. But the recession, the long-term scarring, that's really the main economic challenge long-term, that is going to continue to worsen for some time. So I guess that's in part saying this V-shaped recovery that Republicans have been talking about, where once restrictions are lifted, everything just goes back. I guess you're indicating that the data tells you that that may be in part true, but the question is for those other jobs, those other indicators, the long-term layoffs that you say are similar to the Great Recession, I guess my question to that would be, are these just economic behavioral changes? Like, is that where we're seeing that distribution? People are deciding that maybe I don't need to go to a movie theater anymore because that presents risk and I can now catch things being streamed on Netflix or cruise ship or whatever. I mean, how do you parse those two items out? Yeah. So I think that when it comes to the V-shaped recovery, what we're going to see is actually something that is a little misleading. We're going to see this initial V-shaped recovery. And we sort of saw it in May. Economists were expecting us to lose over 8 million jobs. And instead, we got 2 million back. You know, a miss of 10 million jobs is, is a big, big difference. And so we're seeing this initial V-shape, but we think that that is not going to persist, that once we have that initial bounce back, it's going to have a much slower recovery after that point. As we've seen with Texas, Arizona, Florida, some of these states that reopened prematurely, their initial bounce back, which you know looked like a V, is now actually going in the other direction. They're starting to lose jobs again. And so I think that we need to be careful about jumping to conclusions that just because we have one good month or you know a few good weeks, that that means that we're going to have a, a V-shaped recovery and everyone's going to be back to work at the end of the year. I think you're, you're absolutely right on the second point that some industries are going to be hit more than others. And that's also going to have an impact for how different states are going to do financially. And so a state like Nevada that is heavily dependent on revenue from tourism and casinos and things that require a lot of face-to-face -face contact they're going to be hit very, very hard. Whereas other states that are more rural and have sturdier industries that don't require as much new social distancing are likely to fare better. And so I think that the industry by industry impact, especially if you're thinking about a lot of these businesses, we're going to see a big wave of business failures probably in the hospitality industry, and that can have implications for the long term for sure. Brendan, I'm going to turn to you and maybe pull the thread a little bit further on something that Ben said. Ben was talking about the initial V-shaped recovery in some of the Sunbelt states that's maybe leveling off a bit as we're seeing infection rates rise. Thinking about those states, the Sunbelt, you know, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, are we seeing increases in revenue for those states that are helping to stave off some of this calamity? Or is it more, as Ben was saying, where, yeah, we saw that initially, but now that 
the states having to lock down a little bit further, it's, you know, not altogether solved. My answer to that is yes, we are seeing some improvement in their revenue situation, but with a very big asterisk. So far, only a couple of those states have revised their revenue estimates for the near future. Georgia is now asking all of its government agencies to take a 10% cut. Previously, it was 11, and a little bit before that, it was 14. Arizona has also revised down its estimate of how much money it's going to lose this year. But I think what it really draws attention to and what really needs said is that since these states are also the ones where we're now beginning to see a surge in cases in many of them, the fact that they are now estimating that their revenues are going to improve could be completely wiped out if it becomes actually necessary for them to reclose again to shut business down. Do you see a path forward, a bipartisan path forward to focus attention on this state funding? Yes, there is absolutely a path forward. Democrats do seem to be largely united around this idea that states should have more money. In the HEROES Act, which was introduced in the House of Representatives, it proposed presenting states with about $915 billion that would be very flexible, states could use for, for whatever needs that they have. Flexible aid being a particularly big deal because most of the aid that Congress has passed so far, which includes about $100 billion in direct cash aid and some other aid for specific state needs like education and transportation, all of that money has been to address expenses related to the coronavirus crisis, not to deal with lost revenues. So Democrats are proposing $915 billion that states can basically do what they want with and that can fill whatever needs states recognize that they have, along with some other in-kind aid as well. Republican leadership has been very cool on this idea. They are fearful that big, quote-unquote, bailout packages to state and local governments will reward states for perhaps poor decisions that they made in the past that put them on a bad fiscal trajectory. That said, I think it's worth noting that a number of Senate Republicans have made their interest in passing state and local aid clear. Mitt Romney has come out in favor of it. Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, even joined Senator Menendez from New Jersey in proposing about $500 billion in aid for state and local governments. And I think it's worth noting that Republicans have governorships too. Republicans are in charge of many state governments. And that means that they are going to be getting pressure from people in their states, possibly in their party, to do something. The National Governors Association right now is, is chaired by Larry Hogan, who is a Republican from Maryland, and they have proposed passing $500 billion in aid for state government specifically. So while right now there is a lot of anxiety among some top Republicans about moving forward with this, there are also Republicans who are in favor. The White House has expressed some opposition, but has also signaled that they could be convinced if they could get some of their other priorities into the bill. So when you ask if I think that there is a path forward, I think perhaps having some state aid, possibly with some restrictions related to state pension liabilities and where that money could go to, and some other prominent Republican priorities or, or big priorities from the White House, that could be a path forward for how aid could be passed in the next bill. All right. So 
pretty substantial discussions about substantial amounts of funding being talked about for state aid and assistance, whether that be the $500 billion that was asked for or some other number that NGA or others have come up with. The question to me becomes, all right, so this is just the most recent iteration of a funding package from Congress. How long should this economic support of states last? So I think that ideally, rather than allocate a set amount of money, it would be good for lawmakers to create what we call automatic stabilizers, programs that will provide a level of support based on the real economic conditions on the ground. And what this has the benefit of doing is it means that on the one hand, if we do miraculously get that V-shaped recovery, we won't need to spend you know, the trillion dollars that the, the House bill asked for that might unnecessarily add to the national deficit that some conservatives have used as a, an argument against state aid. On the flip side, the, if the pandemic lasts longer and we see an even greater hit to revenues, we want the federal government to be able to absorb that and provide the aid to states for as long as it needs. And so I think our message to Congress would be to, rather than set aside a pot of money and keep coming back to this issue every couple months, figure out how we want to support state and local governments and make those programs then reflect automatically the real conditions we see. Got it. Makes some sense. What do you think the counter argument is to that? Like, why do you think they'll be held up? The two counter arguments are that number one, it's expensive. And number two, there's concern that the Republicans have sort of framed this as a quote unquote blue state bailout that would plug bad financial decisions made by states that are more structural and not related to the pandemic. And I think the response to that is for the second one, that if you structure the program right, we are not bailing out state pensions that were mismanaged. We are not covering unsustainable programs. We are just reimbursing for the revenue hit and the increased spending resulting from the COVID recession. And so I think that if the support is well calibrated, that's just not something that we have to be concerned about. Even the best managed states are going to have uh, significant financial challenges during this crisis. As far as the impact on the deficit and national debt, I think that that is a long-term issue, but that if there's ever a time to where it's okay to borrow money, it's to get through a short-term national emergency. If we're concerned about the national debt, we should be focusing on long-term structural problems that are creating an ongoing gap between revenues and spending. It's not the short-term support that we really need to get through the pandemic. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.